This is Positively Farming Media. When I started my first garden way back in 2004, I had very little space to work with. I picked a little corner next to my shed in the backyard that I thought I could protect from the dog and keep my three young children out of, unless I wanted them in there. And it ended up being maybe an eight foot by five foot space. I packed quite a bit into that corner and about I don't know, a third of what I planted actually survived and produced something. There is a fine line in gardening between overcrowding the plants and making efficient use of space. If we do it right, the plants benefit from each other and we can get way more out of our garden than we ever dreamed. But if we step over that line, we end up with plants competing with each other for space, water, sunlight, and nutrients, and our yield is dramatically reduced. As we start planting, our gardens for the year, it's time to take a look at the space we have to work with and plan out our gardens to effectively use that space to our advantage. Today on Just Grow Something, we're talking about interplanting. This technique not only allows for you to grow more in the exact same space, but can also reduce weeds and conserve water. Let's dig in. Hey, I'm Karen. I started gardening in a small corner of my suburban backyard, and now 18 years later, I've got a degree in horticulture and operate a 40-acre market farm. I believe there is power in food and that everyone should know how to grow at least a little bit of their own. On this podcast, I share evidence-based techniques to help you plant, grow, harvest, and store all your family's favorites. Consider me your friend in the garden. So grab your garden journal and a cup of coffee and get ready to just grow something. Don't forget to answer the question of the month for January. You can use the link in the show notes to leave me a voice message, answer the Q&A in the episode description if you're listening in Spotify, jump into the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group and post it there, or send me an email to grow at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. The question of the month for January 2024 is how do you plan your garden each season? You have until January 31st to give me your answer and have it included in the February episode. Of course, we're talking all things garden planning and the techniques that go along with them over the next few weeks, and that means I'll be opening up registration for my garden planning course here shortly. To get in on the early bird registration list for my Plan Like a Pro course, use the link in the show notes or go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com slash courses and drop your name and email there, and you will be the first to get the info and have access to early bird bonuses. In that course, we talk in detail about how to use techniques like what we're talking about today in your garden plan year after year to have a much more bountiful and reliable harvest. I would love to see you in there when we start in just a few weeks. JustGrowSomethingPodcast.com slash courses. So interplanting, intercropping, and companion planting. These all essentially fall under the same heading as far as planting techniques go. Most people think of companion planting as being focused solely on the mutual benefits that each plant provides, like repelling insects or attracting beneficial insects, which is true in essence. But it really does fall under the heading of interplanting. So we're just going to use that terminology for all of it. Interplanting is a really 
really great way to maximize space in the garden. And it has the added benefit of leaving less of the soil exposed. So we're reducing weeds and conserving water. If we can plant things together that give other mutual benefits along the way, or we can avoid planting things that might disrupt each other, then all the better. Intercropping is technically used in larger scale farming where rows are alternated with different crops. So we're just going to stick with the term interplanting for our purposes. So with interplanting, you are growing two or more crops right alongside each other for basically their entire life cycle. We could look at this strictly from a space-saving point of view, but these plants could also complement each other in terms of insect-repelling properties or other benefits, and that's, again, where we get the term companion planting. No matter what you call it, the idea is the same. We plant two or more crops together that have complementary growth habits and and nutrient requirements that don't attract the same types of insect pests or diseases and that won't crowd or overshadow each other. So we're either planting smaller crops with taller ones for an entire season or we're doing relay planting where one younger crop is planted into another one that's already on its way to being harvested. In this way, like the second crop gets a little bit of a head start while the first one is still in the ground and you're maximizing the use of the space. This can be done with just about any crop combination so long as they don't compete with each other too much for nutrients or sunlight or space at crucial times. If you're having trouble visualizing this, think about the three sisters method of growing. This is a classic version of interplanting. The three sisters are corn, squash, and beans. The idea is to plant your corn and allow it to begin to grow. Then plant a pole bean at the base of the corn and a winter squash between the rows. The beans fix nitrogen into the soil that the corn uses to grow. The bean uses the corn as a trellis to climb, and the squash vines across the ground and covers the soil between the corn and the beans, choking out weeds and cooling the soil while helping retain moisture. The crops are helping each other reach maturity while reducing the number of weeds and the amount of water needed because the soil is no longer exposed. Now, how do we determine what would be good crops to interplant together in the garden? How do we know what does well together and what doesn't? If we picture a forest or a meadow and really take a look at what's growing there, what do we see? We see lots of different types of plants all intermingled together. Nothing's growing in straight lines and they're not all the same size. The tall ones are among the short ones. The ones that need more water may be paired with those that don't need as much or all the ones that need all the water are bunched together and the drought resilient ones are along the edge. Those that need more sunlight are scattered along the edges of the wooded areas, while the ones that do well in the shade are nestled in among the trees. And what don't you see? Bare soil. If there is bare soil, it is very quickly taken over by advantageous species that fill in the space. In the garden, we call those weeds. So if we take our cue from Mother Nature, what are we looking for in our garden plants that would allow them to work well together? Remember, 
The typical vegetable garden contains annual plants that are from a wide variety of regions from across the world. So they're not all naturally going to fit together like the native plants in a meadow or a forest. We have to put them with their best companions. And we do this by considering a few different things. So the first thing to think about is height and width. Know the mature height of the crop that you're thinking of planting together, and also know about how wide they get. Choose plants that complement each other so that one either purposely shades the other or they don't shade each other at all. Depending on your goal and the amount of time that they're going to be growing together side by side, you might choose to pair tall plants with shorter ones, or you may decide to pair plants that have about the same final height and width as one another together. Now, along with height, we also need to consider the growth rate, the rate at which these plants will grow. Even if the final height of the plants is about the same, if one of them grows much more quickly than the other one, well, there's the potential for shading there. Again, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, especially if one is more heat-loving than the other. We just need to have the information so that we can make an informed decision. Again, it all depends on our goal. Another aspect to consider is growth pattern. Does the plant grow short and compact, or is it tall with a bushy canopy? Does it sprawl along the ground? Does it require a trellis? Think about the plant's growth across the entire season or the entire time it's in the garden space if it's not a full season crop. And plant it with other plants that will complement or at the very least not interfere with each other. The next thing is water requirements. Knowing the water needs of each plant means that you can take advantage of your unique garden circumstances more easily. If you live in an area, for example, that has frequent droughts and you'll be watering quite frequently, you may want to group your thirstiest plants together so that you're only watering certain beds daily and can allow the other beds to be watered less frequently. This is also helpful if you're limited on how far you are from your water source or how far out you can water from your source. You may choose the beds that are closest to your water source for your thirstiest plants and leave the other beds for the less demanding ones. Or you might pair shallow-rooted plants that like lots of water, like lettuce, with much deeper-rooted plants that can scavenge water from much further down in the soil, like tomatoes. And that way, you don't have to water the bed as much because only half of the plants are pulling that water from the top four to six inches of the bed. Another thing to consider would be the nutrient requirements of the plants. Try not to pair crops together that demand the same nutrients at the same time unless you know you have enough nutrients to go around or you plan to amend the soil appropriately. Now, this can be a little bit tricky because most plants tend to need more nitrogen in the early stages of growth because they're relying on that nitrogen for leaf development. But most of our fruiting plants quickly switch that up and they need more in the way of potassium for flowering and fruiting, and so the nitrogen demand drops by comparison. Our leafy greens, on the other hand, tend to need that nitrogen for their entire growth cycle, and some of them rely on it even more so in the final 30 days of their growth. So this is why it's okay to pair something like lettuce with tomatoes. You either do this in the spring by planting the lettuces early 
And then as those lettuces start to get close to maturity, you can interplant the baby tomato plants, which means the lettuce's demand for nitrogen has already decreased at the time right when the new baby tomato plants are going to need it. Or you can plant in the late summer when the tomatoes are already fully established and then plant those lettuces underneath, in which case the tomato's nitrogen demand has already decreased and that allows the young lettuces to take up what they need at the beginning of their life cycle. We wouldn't want to do this with spinach, however. Spinach needs nitrogen the most in the final 30 days before harvest. So while this would work with tomatoes in the fall, we wouldn't want to pair them in the spring unless we were prepared to add a nitrogen amendment to that bed. Now, believe it or not, asparagus and tomatoes actually make sense here. Asparagus, as a perennial, gets a very early start in the spring, and it requires a good amount of phosphorus and even more in potassium than it does nitrogen. And the harvest window would actually be coming to a close by the time the weather warms up enough to plant tomatoes in and around the asparagus bed. So neither crop is going to impede on the other in terms of nutrients. And as a bonus, you would keep the weeds down around the asparagus by filling the space with the tomato plants. So it's all about knowing what each plant needs at what stage of its growth. This kind of leads us also into days to maturity, which sort of goes along with growth rate. But if you plan to grow certain plants together, it's good to know when they will vacate that bed, especially if you're planning to plant one fast maturing variety early on and then interplant a slower growing one with it. You want to know that the faster maturing variety will be harvested before the slower growing one gets choked out or gets overshadowed. Um, This is also important information if you plan on doing any succession planting in that bed, but we will talk more about succession planting in next week's episode. Another consideration would be, do they attract the same pests or harbor the same diseases? Are they in the same plant family? Now, this may not be as big of a deal as you might think in terms of pests, depending on where you are. I used to be really vigilant about rotating my crops year to year to avoid insect pests, and I made sure I didn't plant all of my cucumbers and my squashes in the same area in order to avoid squash bugs and cucumber beetles from getting all of my plants. But even though I'm on 40 acres and I have four different one-acre plots scattered across that acreage with as much as a quarter mile between them as the crow flies, I guarantee that if I plant my cucumbers in the front field and the summer squashes in the pond field and the pumpkins in the midfield, the squash bugs are going to find all of them. So I don't worry about that as much anymore. I'm going to get cabbage worms no matter what. So I have no problem interplanting my kale among my cabbage. I just cover them all. It's a little bit of a different story for me, though, when it comes to diseases. Certain things that we're prone to here in West Central Missouri, like powdery mildew in the late spring, are going to happen on cucumbers more often than not for me. I just mitigate it the best I can. It doesn't tend to spread too much to my zucchini plants, though, for example, even if they're planted in the same area. But something like early blight, which is very easy to get in my tomatoes, but can be battled successfully in that crop, 
would be almost devastating to my potatoes if it were to spread to those. So in that sense, I keep those members of the same plant family away from each other, even though I have no problem growing my peppers and my eggplant near my tomatoes. So this one is going to really depend on what you're growing and where you garden. If you have diseases that spread among your brassicas really, really easily, then maybe don't plant your kale amongst your cabbage. Keep them in different beds and grow lettuce with the cabbages instead. If you've experienced lettuce mosaic virus, you may not want to plant lettuce and spinach together. This is going to be very dependent on your garden, and likely it's going to be a factor of trial and error or honestly just having one bad year where you learn from your plants what you should and shouldn't do. We cannot anticipate every problem. So don't be afraid to experiment, but try to keep those things in mind before you start pairing plants together. And then finally, we have to talk about allelopathy. Some plants will give off chemicals that are detrimental to the other plants around them. Sometimes it's not all plants, only certain families of plants. And there aren't a ton of these, but it's good to know what they are so we're not planting those with ones that they might harm or slow the growth of. For example, brassicas like broccoli, kale, and cabbage do have some allelopathic properties to them, and they can stunt the growth of tomatoes if they are planted together. Sunflowers are another example. Great companions to some plants, not so much to others. I will leave a link to my companion planting chart download in the show notes. If you've not downloaded that before, it's got some of the tips and tricks for companion planting and intercropping, along with a short chart of the most common garden plants that are friends and foes of each other. I keep a copy printed in my garden journal so I don't make mistakes when I'm planning out my garden every year. Once we consider our goals and we look at all the things we just talked about, height and growth pattern of the plants, their water and their nutrient needs, growth rate, days to maturity, then it makes it much easier to figure out what goes best together and what doesn't. So using all this information, let's look at a few ways we can interplant our garden to make better use of the space while at the same time leaving less soil exposed. I plant sweet peas in the very early spring here, and I plant spinach seeds in the bed directly below the pea trellis once those peas have sprouted and are actively climbing. Legume plants like peas, beans, and clover contain nitrogen-fixing bacteria. These bacteria live in nodules in the plant roots. So the bacteria convert nitrogen gas from the air into a form that the plants can use to make proteins. This benefits the pea plants while they're growing, but it also benefits the spinach. Once those pea plants are done producing, if I cut them down and I leave the roots intact, that's also leaving the nitrogen nodules in the soil. So as those nodules break down, because now they're no longer feeding the pea plants, they're releasing that nitrogen. And then the spinach plants can take up that nitrogen right when it needs it most. Remember, we said spinach is most demanding of nitrogen in the final 30 days before harvest. Now, 
In most instances, I will already have been harvesting spinach at the same time that I'm harvesting my peas. But these nodules essentially allow the pea plants to produce their own nitrogen source, which leaves the existing soil nitrogen available to the spinach until the peas are done and cut down. So not only are the peas helping the spinach in terms of nutrients, but the spinach is acting as a living mulch for the peas. It's suppressing weeds and it's keeping the soil cool at the root zone where the peas need it. It's also helping to conserve moisture. It's a space-saving interplanting technique that also serves as sort of a companion planting trick that benefits both the plants. Of course, there are examples of intercropping that is really nothing but saving space, right? These are plants that don't necessarily benefit each other, but they don't disrupt each other either. One really good example is garlic and peppers. If you grow garlic, you know garlic takes up space in the garden for a full six months. We plant ours in the late fall, and we don't harvest until the early summer. But once it's all harvested, that bed is a great space for a summer crop because my garlic is always planted in full, full sun. So planting some pepper plants in between the rows of garlic while they're still maturing is not going to impede on the garlic. And when the garlic gets harvested, now there's plenty of space for those pepper plants to take off and have all of that space to themselves. So in our area, we plant pepper plants, or at least we I do here. Our pepper plants go in the ground around mid-May, sometimes maybe the third week in May, depending on our weather. Garlic is harvested around mid-June, so it works out perfectly. They're really only together for about three to four weeks at the most. If you really want to maximize that space, once all that garlic is harvested and those peppers are starting to get larger, you can plant leafy greens like lettuces in the understory of those peppers in the late summer to transition that back to a fall crop again like we do with, you know, lettuce and tomatoes. You can also think about planting shallow-rooted plants like radishes or lettuce in between deeper-rooted plants like tomatoes. Or you can put tall plants like tomatoes or corn or pole beans on a trellis on the south or west side of the garden, if you're in the northern hemisphere, of course, and then plant a less heat-tolerant crop on the north or east side so it can take advantage of some afternoon shade. Put green onions in between all of your broccoli or your cabbage plants. Plant Swiss chard alongside your turnips. Parsley and basil in with your tomatoes, spinach alongside strawberries. Each individual bed does not need to be dedicated to one single crop. Interplanting can not only help you maximize space in the garden, but can also help to combat those weeds and better utilize the moisture. And sometimes if they're good companions with each other, they can help repel insect pests too. So if we can fill that space in without overcrowding the plants, we are leaving less open space, which also means we are using less mulch, which is reducing our expenses. It also means that we're leaving less space available for those weeds to pop up, which is also decreasing our effort in the garden.
Interplanting can seem a little bit intensive at first. It's going to take some trial and error in the garden to see what works best with your plants and your particular layout. There might be a tendency to either overcrowd the plants at first or not plant them closely enough. So be sure to keep good records. Annotate the spacing of each plant compared to the ones next to them. Did that spacing work? Oftentimes we give plants way more room than what they need, and that can be detrimental too. Like I said, it's a fine line. Experiment with what you want to grow and keep good records, and you're bound to find the combinations that work best for you and your garden. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. For more information about today's topic and to find all the ways you can get in touch with me or support the show, go to justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep learning and keep growing.